This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Welcome, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and it is Sunday, January the 29th, 2023. Today is week three of part three of our journey through the amazing letter to the Colossians. I encourage you to have your Bible, and you can access my message notes through our church website, which is trinityvale.com. So, thank you for joining us, and let's jump in. So, it's the summer after my sophomore year at Texas A&M. I'm back home in Fort Worth, and with some friends, I'm visiting the recreation center at the seminary that was next to our church. When, lo and behold, I happened to bump into one of the youth ministry volunteers back from when I was in high school. Now, her name was Lynn. I guess hopefully still is Lynn. (laughs) And she comes over to me, super friendly, asks me how I'm doing. We have a little conversation. And then, like any good youth leader will do, she says, So, Ethan, how's your walk with the Lord? Now, guys, I had barely stepped foot in a church in about two years. So, like any self-respecting, backsliding Christian college student, I lied. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. Am I going to church? Well, you know, college is super busy, but I, I might make it every now and then. You know, but, 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 but I am part of a small group of guys that meets at least once a week. But what I failed to disclose there is that this group of guys I met with, we met at a place called the Dixie Chicken. And if you don't know what the Dixie Chicken is in College Station, you can look it up. But the rest of that story, my friends, is that when I did return to my faith about three years later, Part of that journey was my memory and my conviction that came from Lynn's question. So let me ask you, how's your walk with the Lord? You know, that can be an uncomfortable question. It may be hard to answer without some real discussion. It might might put pressure on you because, you know, you don't want to say, well, you know, okay, I think. Or, you know what, I'm super struggling. Perhaps what may come to mind is Jesus' famous statement in John 10.10, where Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that you may have life, and have it to the full. Or, as my awesome Hawaiian Pigden translation puts it, The thief, he just come to bust up the place. But I come that you may come alive inside and live life to the max. Abundant life. Life to the max. Fullness of life. My friends, what does that even mean? I mean, when you take that seriously, sometimes it can give us an an inferiority complex. I mean, what does this really look like? Well, you know, it's clear Jesus and then Paul, they're not talking about an abundance of possessions, right? Material, temporary things. Jesus made that clear, as just does the life experience of most believers. And it's also not that life should be this constant thrill, this constant high, this constant adventure. I mean, thrills and adventures can be wonderful, but it's not the reality of life in an ongoing way for the vast majority of people. It's also not some kind of super spiritual or emotional high. You know what might happen at this really awesome worship or prayer service? You know, those type of experiences too can be wonderful, but they also, for most believers, are rare. 
and they're not descriptive of ongoing everyday life. And friends, this is important because when Jesus and Paul talk about fullness of life, they are describing something that is core to us, ongoing and increasingly normative, not something that is the exception or rare. So when Paul wrote to the first century church in Colossa, his audience certainly didn't have material wealth, right? Our concept, adventure, and thrill would have been foreign to them. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, Paul actually speaks against the notion that our faith is validated or truly authenticated through some unusual or elite spiritual experience. And yet, to these believers, Paul proclaimed that in Christ they had been As a completed work, they had been brought to fullness. Now, this brings us to Colossians 2, 9. Our text today is Colossians 2, 9 through 12. And Paul begins this thought by driving home the consistent theme that in Christ we see the fullness of God. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay, friends, that statement is so important, and we've covered this extensively over the past few months, so I'm not going, to go, not going to go into it again. Just one observation, though. Paul is setting up a parallel statement here, and he begins by referencing the fullness of the deity, right? meaning that in Christ we have seen the fullness of the nature and the character of God. But not only that, Paul continues now saying that in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Verse 10, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness, for he is the head over every power and authority. Now, let's note that Paul doesn't say you are being brought to fullness. He says you have been brought to fullness. Okay, what does that even mean? Well, there's a few ways to think about this. First, there is what Christ has already done in us spiritually. Okay, In Christ, we are fully and forever forgiven. And not all Christians believe that. right? That's an important thing. It's super, super central to the New Testament. But we are fully and forever forgiven. We have been completely made new. We have the fullness of Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit. This is another key thing. Friends, our experience of the Spirit will grow over time but we will never have more of the Spirit than what we have now as a believer. We will never receive more of the Spirit than what we received when we became a believer. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us fully. Also, Scripture says things such as we are fully accepted by God. We are fully loved by God. We are fully children of God. We have fully been brought into the family of God. And these are all things that are, I'll say the word again, fully true of us through our union with Christ. But it doesn't stop there. You see, Paul is purposefully comparing how Christ is the fullness of God with our fullness in Christ. So if we ask, what does fullness in Christ look like? The answer is, well, look at Jesus. You see, my friends, when we experience fullness in Christ, right? looking at this through the lens of what the text actually says, if we take it seriously, When we experience fullness in Christ, we will be loving like Christ. We will be accepting like Christ. We will be servant-hearted like Christ, compassionate like Christ, patient like Christ, courageous like Christ, sacrificial like Christ. And my friends, we will be humble 
like Christ. Now, of course, we're not there yet. I mean, as Paul said in Philippians 3, and I'm paraphrasing just a little here, he says, I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Listen, again, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived at my goal. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And church, the prize that Paul seeks to win isn't just heaven when we die. Paul says, God is calling me heavenward, right? That's the ultimate destination, but the prize, the goal, Paul says, for which I'm straining toward, and that for which Christ took hold of me, is to fully live and experience now all that was fully given when Christ called me as his own. You see, my friends, the goal, this, this is a big thought. The goal of Christian maturity isn't just entry into heaven. It is the fullness of Christ's character and nature expressed in our lives authentically today. Right? That's the journey that we are moving toward. I mean, guys, think of this image. Have, have you, I'm sure you have, but have you ever thought about or imagined what it will be like when we step from this world in to heaven. It was the famous Christian song, I Can Only Imagine. You know, but sometimes when we think of this, it's easy to see that this will be the time when we'll finally cast off all of our crushing burdens. You know, like a backpacker finally reaching the end of a trail, dropping the pack, and just collapsing in utter and total exhaustion. Uh, I can relate to that. And thinking, now I can finally rest. Or, like an exhausted swimmer, you know, it's, maybe was swept out to sea, and they're using their last bit of strength to crawl onto a beach, and they discover that it's an unbelievable paradise. And friends, I think, to, of course I'm speculating, but to some degree, that will be the case for all of us, to some degree. Because here's the thing. Paul's description of the heavenward call of God is that each day in this life, we are increasingly experiencing the fullness that we have already received in Christ, so that when we do cross the boundary into eternity, it will be but a small step into the miraculous reality that we will recognize as having already been our home. In fact, in Ephesians 2, go read Ephesians 2, Paul says, you know, let me tell you something about heaven. In your spirit, in your true identity, you are already there. So, Paul continues here. So he says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And he says, he is the head over every power and authority. Okay, simply put, we do not have to fear the powers and authorities that would seek to undermine our experience and our expression of the fullness of Christ's life in us. You see, every power and authority that exists or may ever exist does so at the mercy of God, and they have no power to overcome God's goodness. Now, we may grant them that power, right? But they don't have it in and of themselves. Now, we are called to respect, of course, right? We know this. It's hard, but we know it. We are called to respect governmental authorities, obey within biblical boundaries, and to be a transforming influence of God's nature and character in the midst of our society and culture. 
But in Christ, my friends, we have been freed from the fear of those who would temporarily hold power over us. Now, God understands that it is one thing to intellectually understand that we have received from what we have received from Christ, right? All the fullness that is given to us. But that it's another thing for that knowledge to make the journey down into the reality of our mind, our will, and our emotions, how we think, we feel, and we act. And so we hear Scripture saying, I want to make sure you really understand, you comprehend what it is God has done together with your faith. You need to understand the fullness of this truth so that you may choose to believe that this is the foundation of your life. This is the framework of how you see and approach your day. And this is the source to which you continually turn. So to unpack this further, Paul's going to go on to describe three things that God has done. And it's the truth that in Christ, we have been circumcised, baptized, and raised. Okay, in Christ, we have been circumcised. Verse 11, Colossians 2. Now in Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised with Christ. Now, this whole passage I read today is from the New International Version. Okay, Now, friends, I'm going to trust that I don't need to explain the circumcision, the circumcision metaphor too much. Let's just suffice to say something was removed. So, what is Paul talking about here? Okay, well, first... Paul clearly isn't saying that the Colossians or anyone that they needed to participate in the physical rite of circumcision to be, a, to be a believer. He's actually pushing against that. External rituals have zero power apart from how we respond to God in our heart. And of course, we see this in Galatians 5 and then again in chapter 6, where Paul says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When Paul makes a parallel statement in chapter 6, he ends it by saying, what counts is the new creation. In Romans chapter 2, we see it this way. And in the context here, when you hear Paul refer to a Jew, think of that as meaning a child of God. So Romans 2 verses 28 and 29, Paul writes, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. All right. So, my friends, when Paul says that we, in Christ, right, really by Christ, that the believer has undergone a spiritual circumcision, this means that there's something in our spiritual identity and our spiritual life that has been taken away. Right? Something that used to be a part of us that isn't part of us anymore. Or better put, perhaps, something that used to be in power that has now been emptied of its power. And that something, according to this scripture, is our flesh. Again, the NIV says, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, has been put off. The NASB renders it the removal of the body of the flesh. 
Now, guys, it's been a while since I've taught on this, but the flesh, that concept, the flesh, is an absolutely critical New Testament idea. And it's not just referring to morally negative thoughts and actions, although those are a result of the flesh. You see, in its essence, the flesh is everything I am, everything a believer is apart from Christ. Here's a good description from a study I did, actually based on literature from an organization called Exchange Life Ministries. And this is the idea. The flesh is a condition, right, a mindset, an attitude, strategy of living, where my focus is primarily on myself, even if it's good-looking self, well-adjusted self, or socially acceptable self, where I am living out of my own resources, such as my heritage, my education, my IQ, my personality, my sense of humor, or lack thereof, my looks, my talents, my abilities, etc., etc., etc. And I use all these in order to deal with life, solve my problems, and meet my needs. You see, my friends, before we entered into faith in Christ, our flesh, the self-life that I just described, that was all we had, okay? But now, in Christ, we have a new source of life, a new mindset and attitude that rather than being defined by dependence upon self, it is defined by our dependence upon God. And so Paul proclaims that old person you used to be, that old strategy of living, an old condition of your heart, your whole self that was ruled by the flesh, Christ has cut that away. He has stripped it of authority and power. And of course, this is what Galatians 2.20 talks about. When we hear Paul say, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Right? I am no longer my source of life, but Christ lives in me. By faith, Christ is my source of life. But the question still remains, if my flesh has been removed from power, why do I still struggle with living by the flesh? And this reminds me of an illustration that I heard years ago, and it's comparing our flesh, are you ready for this, to a zombie, to a zombie. So I want you to imagine that, that that old person you used to be, before you were a believer, the old person we used to be, okay? Romans 6, and actually many other passages as well, makes it clear that that person is no longer who we are. It is powerless and dead, literally crucified with Christ. But in this life, the zombie of that old self still follows us around, constantly trying to make us think that it is who we really are. What, your spouse let you down? Wait, 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 no, 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 don't be patient, right? Don't be forgiving, come on, be angry, get even, say something snarky, that's your nature, that's who you are. And my friends, this plays out in a thousand different ways. And in these moments, we have a choice to make. Who do we look to as our authority? To which voice do we yield? Upon whom do we depend? Now, friends, here's something key. These two voices, the voice of the flesh and the voice of the spirit, they are not opposite equals. Now, the flesh does have a voice, and it's constantly lying to us tempting us, leading us into pride or condemnations, all of those old patterns that used to define us. But the voice of the flesh can be very loud 
and very persuasive, but it is not who we are. It is counterfeit, and apart from us granting it authority, it no longer has power over us. The Spirit, on the other hand, is also a voice, but not just a voice, for the Spirit is who we are. The Spirit is our source of life. The Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ, and the Spirit is always leading us into the life, the goodness, the freedom, and the character of God. You see, in those moments of temptation, or reaction as the case may be, we often may think, right, even if it's just instantly and subconsciously, you know, my choice here is between good and bad, right and wrong to sin or not to sin. And so I've got to really bring my willpower to bear to make the choice to do good rather than bad. Now, of course, those are choices we do make. But friends, the prior choice, the truly crucial and most important choice, is the choice between the lying, con artist voice of our flesh or listening to the life-giving voice of the Spirit. You see, my friends, the most important choice we make is not what we actually end up doing, but it is upon whom we depend, who we listen to. And so, in Colossians 3, we're going to see Paul exclaim, So set your mind on things above, for you died and your life is now hidden, right, bound up together with Christ and God. And in Galatians 5, we hear, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And my friends, the really good news is that as we increasingly turn to the Spirit, right, day in and day out, right, consciously making that choice so that it increasingly becomes right, just the, 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 the natural pattern of our thinking as opposed to the old natural pattern of our thinking, right, as we continually depend and experience depending upon the presence of Christ in us, the voice of our zombie flesh is going to go weaker and the voice of the Spirit will go stronger and clearer. And my friends, one step at a time, the default of our mind, will, and our emotions will begin to change from a struggle with sin that we sometimes overcome to a prevailing freedom, even though we still sometimes fail. And that is what the New Testament calls sanctification, transformation. And friends, it is the journey into freedom and into fullness. In Christ, our flesh has been circumcised and its authority is gone. So now going on, Paul continues to expand upon this truth, now proclaiming that in Christ we have been baptized that the first half of verse 12, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, and now we move into verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, we've got to unpack this just a little bit. Friends, as we saw in Acts, baptism by immersion of confessing believers was the consistent practice of the early church. You know, in evangelical culture, we will talk about, you know, the sinner's prayer and the idea of asking Christ into our life. Right? And that's, that's wonderful. But for the first several generations of the church, baptism itself 
was the confession by which the person confirmed their faith and entered into the community of faith. And that is actually a more biblical understanding and a pattern than some of the evangelical formulas that we have today. But as important as the act of baptism was and is, Paul's emphasis here goes to the heart of the confession and the faith that baptism represents. As you may know, the word baptize literally means to immerse, to make one with, to bring into union. And so in baptism, we see this miracle portrayed before us that through faith in Christ, we died with Christ. The flesh is stripped of power, the old is gone, and the new has come. And our new life, our new source of life, will bring with it, in increasing measure, a new way of life. In Romans 6, Paul describes it like this. And I'm starting right at the top of the chapter. And we read, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you hear that? That's not who we are. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, right? This is almost parallel language to what we just read in Colossians. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Done away with. And that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, guys, if that's the first time you've really heard that passage you need to go spend time studying it. Uh, I forget how far back my online sermons go, but we've spent a lot of time on this, oh geez, about three, three to four years ago when we were going through the book of Romans. Incredible passage. But summing it up with our topic here, it's telling us that in Christ, right, we have been circumcised and that circumcision of what, has, what the Spirit did in our life, we see illustrated for us through baptism and in Christ by faith we have been baptized. Just as we have been joined with Christ in his death, okay, the old is gone, so also we have now joined with Christ in his resurrection, for the new has come. And church, that leads to the third and greatest truth of what has already happened to us through faith in Jesus. And it's the truth that in Christ we have been raised. Second half of verse 12, right? Having been buried with Christ in baptism, and he goes on, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. All right. Uh, I, I should have a whole sermon just on that one statement. But listen, church, we are people of new life. We are people of hope. We are people of resurrection. And someday there will come a day when God will exert his power to give us literal new resurrection bodies that will never decay and will per persevere for all eternity. 
Now, one day, 2,000 years ago, God exerted his power when he raised raised Christ from the dead. And my friends, the miraculous present tense of the New Testament is that in Christ, we have already received, right, right now, the resurrection power of God as our power for life today. Now, we're going to come back to that in greater depth when we start into Colossians 3. But I want to close with this. Friends, we often talk about the centrality of Christ, and we absolutely should. Colossians, in fact, is an exaltation of Christ's completed work, Christ's continuing presence, and the implications of this for how we live. But through the lens of the New Testament, we really can't talk about the centrality of Christ without remembering and also considering the centrality of the community of Christ. Let's think about this just for a moment. Friends, one of the biggest differences between the culture of the first century biblical world and our culture today, right, a difference that profoundly impacts how we interpret and apply Scripture, it's our concept of self. You see, our culture today is highly individualistic. When we think of self, our concept is almost always personal, right? Personal freedoms, personal choices, my personal identity, my personal relationship with Christ. The church for the first century world, to whom all the New Testament was written, the primary concept of self wasn't personal. It was communal. It was familial, right? Freedom was the freedom to be a community. Now, when I made a choice, my first thought wouldn't be, how is this choice going to impact me? But how is it going to impact those around me, my family, my friends? Now, my identity wouldn't have been based on my performance, but on my relationships with other people. And for its most important, but most importantly for us right here, my relationship with Christ was not something I primarily thought of personally, but a great gift that I experienced as an integral part of my faith community. So, when we hear Paul say, you were raised with Christ through your faith, okay, what we hear, right, the primary point is that I was raised with Christ through my faith, right? That's our lens. But when we take into account the critically important lens of cultural context, we will hear Paul saying, you all, in relationship with one another, you were raised with Christ through your faith that you share and experience together as a family of faith. Now, of course, our faith is individual. No one can choose to believe for us. But the primary New Testament concept of how we experience and express our faith and how we experience the fullness given to us. It's not just personal and individual. It is communal. It is as part of a community and how we experience this community in relationship with other believers and the people around us. So that brings deeper meaning to Paul's example of circumcision. You see, under the Old Covenant, circumcision didn't just symbolize a person's relationship with God, but their entry into the community of God, right? They're being sealed as part of the community of God. 
Likewise, baptism in the early church wasn't just a personal confession of faith. It was a public confession of entering into the redeemed community of faith. And when we think of resurrection, it's not just about me going to heaven when I die. It's the miracle that through faith in Christ, I have now been filled with the very Trinitarian and communal life of God, which places me in union with every other person for all time who has also come to enter into the redeeming power of life in Christ through our faith in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you, all of you together, as a loving, forgiving, redemptive family of faith, you have been brought to fullness. Church, may it be said of us. I love you much. We'll see you back here again next week. Thank you.